And so when you look at the history of the development of a Christian sexual ethic within the Christian identity and what it meant to have your true confession be that Jesus is Lord, you are embracing a sexual ethic at your baptism. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Well, Nathan, the a question has has come up here regarding the Christian Reformed Church. And it's very much a question that is just of our time. So the Christian Reformed Church is a relatively small denomination in the United States. And they recently have come together at the synod, synod and put together what is called now infamously the Human Sexuality Report, Human Sexuality Report. Like so many denominations right now in North America, the issues of issues of sexuality are creating massive tension internally, and the church is really, this denomination is trying to deal with it. The reason this is making headlines, though, is because this is a relatively small denomination, as I mentioned, with churches mainly in the United States and in Canada. But their flagship college is Calvin College, which is quite well known, actually. It's probably not as well known as, as Wheaton College, but it is certainly up there. They have a number of fairly well-known faculty members now and in the past. Some celebrities have matriculated there. Alvin Plantinga, the... Director and screenwriter Paul Schrader, who I'm a big fan of, by the way, was was there. But now, of course, they have Kristen Dumay, who some of you will recognize the name because she is the author of Jesus and John Wayne. Also, James K.A. Smith, author of the fairly popular You Are What You Love, as well as the Cultural Liturgy series, which began with Desiring the Kingdom. And Walter Zorz so, was there, right? A lot of... Yep, Nicholas Wolterstorff. There's another one. And so, speaking of the faculty, when this when this report emerged, I think about a third of the faculty have basically threatened to leave if Calvin College adopts this this measure. So, what's happening and I think there's there are massive internal struggles in the in the individual churches as well, although <laughs> We'll get into the into the way that that plays out in a sort of congregation by congregation basis because some people have have already said, "Look, I I left this denomination a long time ago, and even though it's ostensibly committed to an orthodox biblical sexual ethic, in fact, most churches operate independently and have not for a long time." So that's interesting, but this brings us again to I think one of the, the major challenges to institutional authority at this moment. This, it happens to take this particular form, form, especially regarding sexual ethics. So here we are again, Nathan. It's a really contentious issue. It is a stressful issue. It's one that's causing a lot of turmoil. So why on earth are we bringing this up again? I think we need to bring it up because there are so many questions surrounding this issue, and it is just, it's simply not going to go away. And so I think it will be fruitful to talk about it. We want to navigate with care, compassion, and firmness, get that balance in there. But I thought that this might be 
this might be something that's helpful to speak about. And of course, it's not an isolated incident. This is a huge bone of contention in so many denominations. This is, I mean, there are major tensions in in my own denomination of the PCA. There are made, I mean, basically just pick, take your pick. This is a huge point of tension right now. So I do think it'll be helpful to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Let me tell you a story that maybe sets the, that would give us some parameters for discussing this, because I think when you look at the denominations that are wrestling with this issue or any institution that is, somehow this in- issue has become the issue over which vast amounts of people realize that they were not nearly as unified and on the same page as they previously thought they were. And so there's a bit of a shock that comes from looking at an issue and recognizing the different ways in which people are seeing this and then thinking like, oh man. So so on one hand, it is a big issue. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of other bubbles under the paint here that for whatever reason, this is just kind of the, the, culture, the cultural button that gets pushed that then highlights a lot of other uh, differences that are happening. Probably, well, we can pick on the way past here because it makes us feel safe. But so back in the day, we're talking like late 1680s, uh, there was a discussion that rose up among the Mennonites about how many times a year you should have communion. And up until that point, everybody had been celebrating it once. So during Passover, um, what we call Monday, Thursday now. And then some people said, well, what if you're having a baby that night? Then maybe you miss communion for that year. And that's a really big deal to miss communion. So maybe we should have it twice a year. And so they started traveling around asking the churches what they thought about maybe having communion twice a year. And in that traveling around to ask the question, they found out that they were different, that the individual churches were way more different on a whole lot of other things than they ever thought. And that actually led to the formation of the Amish. So uh, the Amish were the, the new kids, the breakaway group there. But it was just like, so here's one issue that presents itself as something. And then as we push into this issue and try to come to a decision on it, we find out that we were way different on a whole lot of other things. And I think that leads to the friction. But then you add in the politically charged nature of the topic culturally, and then it so quickly and so easily gets hammered down into a kind of a, um, yeah, a partisan shouting match in some ways. Um that it's unfortunate. So all that to say that, yes, it is a big issue. On the other hand, it's the byproduct of some other issues, I believe. It's not really the, it, yeah, it's not really the issue itself. It's a byproduct. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I, it does make sense. And yeah, because here's something that I've been talking about in recent, in recent event, live events and talks so when during times of relative cultural stability, it's possible to not recognize a lot of these inherent tensions. And this is kind of, I think, what you were getting at. So, But then when you, you reach a point of real serious tension surrounding a particular issue, say communion, or say changing cultural mores regarding sexuality, suddenly when in the, in the heat of that moment you recognize there was not consensus in the first place. Mm-hmm. What we thought was kind of a sense of stability and peace was in fact a false peace. And I think we are seeing that clearly here. Now, I want to bring in one salient point right now that I think will be helpful. Of all the, the major sources of tension in the North American church, 
I think this is one that carries the heaviest social cost right now. And I think it's worth bringing that in. There, There is, when it comes to changing sexual mores, and I'm trying to avoid some of the loaded political language that often it's so you know lgbtq lgbtqia plus and all of this terminology which is it seems ever evolving always changing you never know i mean if you want to put a time stamp on anything that you say use the current lingo because it will change quite soon and i don't really want to play that particular ever shifting language game because it just it is just that it's kind of a game it's kind of I, and it, t- it tends to sometimes, I think, take our focus off of some of the issues that I think are a little bit more clear here. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, well, you have can- the biblical sexual ethic, and then you have the social cost. Yeah, Nathan, interject. Well, I, I just want to just point out here, part of the reason that narrowing it down into a category like LGBT is that their report is fairly expansive. It condemns pornography, premarital sex, adultery, Uh, You know, it's a whole lot and including greed and everything else that's in that list. So it's a very Mm -hmm. expansive list of just clarifying some historic biblical categories on. um, Yeah, some just basic kind of biblical definitions. So so part of it is if if you narrow it down, the the broad phrase is better there just to affirm what you're doing, because it, it captures a lot. But we want to remind people who haven't read it that the report we're discussing does include all of that. It's not picking on one specific um, sexual practice. Yes. But also it's, it's, worth, it's worth pointing out here that, so is Christianity especially restrictive when it comes to sexuality? No, actually, it is not. But is it in cultural terms really restrictive when it comes to sexuality? Well, the cultural approach to human sexuality these days is completely foreign to scripture. So it will, if you look at it from the standpoint of cultural orthodoxy, Christianity will look restrictive and repressive. But if if you're a Christian, that is the wrong point of orientation. That's the wrong standpoint. Because if Christianity is true, and I'm just bringing in, I think it's going to be helpful for orienting this discussion just to bring in some, what what we believe are some basic assumptions of the church here, to help guide the the conversation. So if Christianity is true, then God himself is the author of marriage. He is the author of sex. So instead of just speaking of boundaries and parameters, it's totally appropriate to do so, and that's very helpful and it's needed, but also to speak in terms of telos, purpose, and design. If something has an author, it means it has a telos, a purpose, and a design. So marriage and sexuality, which belongs within the institution of marriage, has a purpose and it has a design. And it is it has a beautiful purpose and a beautiful design. But just to think about it in those terms, already, already, there is, that's going to sound massively counterintuitive when we think about the cultural views on sexuality. Because the cultural view on sexuality really these days tends to bring it under the umbrella of kind of identity and self-expression. Whereas in Christianity, sexuality is part of marriage, thus it is deeply tied to both intimacy between men and women and 
procreation. Those are inescapable aspects of human sexuality as it has been conceived by its author. But to think about it in identity terms, I think that'll give us some idea of why this is such a flashpoint. Because, again, we have for a long time in America been telling us, been telling ourselves the story that we can be whatever and whoever we want to be. And anything that stands in the way or that opposes that or resists that is to be, you know, basically you should you should fight it off you should move past it and you should i mean at all costs basically express yourself and be yourself so there we so there we have a big point of tension <laughs> all right so try this one for size um is it possible that part of the issue at stake here is that christianity is not primarily seen as an identity because you so I think there is a sense in which it has something to do with identity, but people don't think that Christianity has its own identity that includes a sexual ethic. Because I think we have lived in a culture mm-hmm. where the self actualization has expressed itself in the church to the degree that you kind of have this cafeteria style development of the of the individual. And so I think it it's not it's not an identity verse an archaic institution. It's an identity versus an identity, and mm. but we're if we're treating it one like yeah. so the reason you can you can hear this play out in the way that people argue about it. So and this is not unique to this denomination, but you look at the pushback and 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 how people are doing it, and people like groups are just missing each other on the language. So some people will use the archaic language language like you did, Cameron, and talk about sex having an author and, you know, <laughs> like a biblical theological framework. Right. And then other people say, no, we have to embrace this or we're going to use, lose the young people from the church and we have to adapt to their wants and needs. And the one group is going to look at that and be like, Are, have you lost your mind? The last thing we need is a church that adapts to the wants of the younger generation. Like when did, you know, <laughs> this generation all of a sudden become able to supplant thousands of years of theology uh, and then the mm-hmm. other group is going to push back and say, well, you're not being sensitive to the changing times. So there's that miscommunication happening, two groups operating with different assumptions, one of them being that there are scriptural and ontological foundations for this, other that there are individual and cultural references and foundations for this. And then you take the outworking of those two different opinions, one being that oh, for crying out loud, the church just needs to grow up and get over this, and the church will outgrow this. And so it's a progressive thing to be on the leading edge of embracing all the changes that are uh, presented to us in the sexual category. And then you have another group who says, no, sexual mores are not something that the church grows out of and into. Actually, or the, the church, let me say that again. Sexual ethics are not something that the church grows into. A sexually diverse culture is something that the church grew out of. And so when you look at the history of the development of a Christian sexual ethic within the Christian identity and what it meant to have your true confession be that Jesus is Lord, you are embracing a sexual ethic at your baptism. Mm-hmm. We'll just leave that there for a second. But just to say yeah, it's, and- it's something that you're growing yeah. toward, not out of or into. That got a little confusing. Straighten me out there. Well, I can't really straighten you out other than to say that Christianity is holistic 
in its claim on you, or Christ, I should say, is holistic. So he doesn't want part of you. He wants you. I think it's worth bringing in an important distinction here. So, and I think I'm using the word tension way too much in this podcast, but there is a tension here, and it's a good one. (laughs) This is a good tension to wrestle with. So, in Christianity, does that mean that yourself is, you're kind of just assimilated, and you sort of lose yourself, and everything is purged, and you kind of merge with God? Well, no. That description sounds a little bit more Eastern, actually. No, you, but... But when you give yourself to Christ, when you surrender to him, we are told to take up our cross. So sacrifice is involved, and what you're giving up is your life, your life for Christ's sake. If Christianity is true, this is a wonderful thing to do because Christ is your author. He made you, and your life is hid with him in God, to use Paul's language from Colossians. So in giving yourself up for Christ, you'll get yourself back, but you're giving yourself up for his sake. Now, you're not assimilated in the sense in an, in a kind of eastern sense. You were made with a purpose with a purpose. You are again his workmanship to use Paul's language this time from Ephesians, made for good works. So that means your own your weird, quirky personality is there for a reason. And the wor- and the Lord wants to work through you specifically. This is where your own gifts, your own passion, your own calling comes into play. That's the positive way to look at it. Your quirks and your weirdnesses and your gifts and your passions, those are to be used for the Lord. Here's the dark side of that. It's the same coin. It's the dark side of the coin, you might say. All of us, have parts of our lives that need to die. All of us have sinful habits, inclinations of our hearts that are deeply destructive to us and inimical to our relationship with Christ. And we are battling to put those deeds to death. And it's it's a slow kind of grueling process, but self-sacrifice is required of every single one of us. This is where I find Sam Albury very helpful on this point. He, he often will say, people will say, well, it's very difficult for you as somebody who is same-sex same attracted. You mean there's just huge sacrifice in your life. And he essentially says, well, if your faith costs you nothing, you have cause to examine your heart. Self-sacrifice is required of all of us. So it's it's a level playing field there. So I think that's that's a that's a salient point to bring in here as well. Nathan, you've are, got something. Are, yeah, well, I want to put you on the spot here because um, – so the the issue at play, coming back to the Christian Reformed Church, is that they made their statement on human sexuality part of their confession. So a lot of churches have like policies yes, or statements yep. on it, but here they've elevated it into a confessional thing uh, that has to be affirmed mm-hmm. to be part of who they are. And I think that's where the professors are having trouble with that. Um, but so so here's my question: Given what you've just said. About, about this rich theological foundation and underpinning of it, is that the right move to make to make our sexual... If we live in a culture that is uh, seems to sexualize everything, is that a theologically permissible move to yeah. then make a sexual statement part of mm-hmm. your confession? No pressure. Yeah, 
it's very well it's very much of a piece with our moment because this is this is an issue that has uniquely been elevated culturally speaking and so i think that there is some concern that because there's so much confusion on this from a cultural standpoint and just in our day-to-day lives that it's necessary now to include this as a, as an item in our confession but is doing so a reactionary move is it ironically if we do that are we conceding too much to the cultural consensus on the centra- on the centrality of sexuality if i'm understanding the gist of your your question correctly here and it's worth by the way as a side note real quickly bringing in here that sexuality may be elevated as central to identity in our culture but that is simply not true in biblical anthropology because singleness is not on, not only is singleness a viable option the apostle paul seems to think that it's a very it's a superior option if you want to be really steadfast in your devotion to christ he doesn't think many people can pull it off but he he explicitly says it's excellent it's the it's the better way if you're married if you have children so on and so forth you're going to have a lot of troubles a lot of distractions hey how many times have we paused during this particular episode to deal with you know well me with with loud children and all that i can i can personally vouch for the truth of that statement <laughs> but on the other hand of course centrally we can point to <laughs> we can point to our lord as somebody who never had sex and if that's you know if that was some prerequisite for full humanity to quote Sam Albury once again he says if sexuality is necessary is a necessary ingredient for full humanity you're calling my lord subhuman so i think it's really important to i guess i think just sort of stressing what you were getting at Nathan that sexuality as it's elevated in our culture has never been elevated in the church to that degree now it's true that marriage is used as a central metaphor for the mystical union between Christ and his bride the church so that is certainly very grandiose imagery and very grandiose language but nevertheless that kind of central to human identity aspect is foreign to scripture so by including that as in ex- an explicit confession in in our confessional documents are we in fact conceding that point to the culture i think it's worth i think it's worth really wrestling with that a little bit so the well let's let's run this at another angle as we we're processing it here i guess the so you're talking a lot about identity and we're talking about identity of individuals and then collectively as christians but as it comes to the identity of a denomination or of an institution, I think there is real benefit in bringing clarity, and I think they will grow on the other side of this decision. Now, they'll certainly lose people, but the the statistical trends are that groups that can bring clarity to what they actually practically believe about things are the groups that are doing the best. And so there's kind of this like, oh, unless we change our sexual... Um, ethics to be more permissive to modern secular ideas of what's acceptable, the church is going to die. Mm -hmm. However, and maybe somebody can correct me on this if I'm wrong, 
but I have not seen a skyrocketing attendance on any major denomination that has gone that route. And so it's always funny to me, like the small denominations like, oh yeah, we're going to be the one denomination that's going to grow as a result of doing this. Right. Yeah. The odds are not in your favor. <laughs> I mean, people, people rarely are seeking an institution that they will be committed to for life. That doesn't have a standard higher than their own desires. Because there's like there's not a point in being part of that if it's doing what you so anyway, there's there's a little bit of that. Like some of this is numerical. We can just look at the look at people who have made these choices in 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 the past and see where some of this is leading. So there's that element. But all that to say is that I do think there is a growing desire for institutional clarity to say, if I'm gonna be part of something, I need to know what that thing, what this thing believes. And you and I are part of the generation that has mm-hmm. pioneered historically low levels of institutional fidelity. Very few of us are members of any like professional associations or, I mean, social media doesn't count, but like, you know, I used to be part of a unicycling club. I had a membership to some national unicycle. You know, I'm not part of that. You know why? Because I can ride a unicycle and I don't need to be part of a national organization in order to do that. Like there's, like it's pointless to be part of the institution. So I think there is a sense in which yeah. There this this is a this is also a switch in a different direction that's new. So just as the sexual identity piece has become more um, has come to be seen as a more prevalent part of the way we conceptualize ourselves as individuals, I think that there will in the future need to be an increased clarity because also you don't want people to join your institution and then find out that you believe something that they don't. So I think there's a compassion here on yeah. both sides to establish clarity just so you can say, hey, this is who we are and this is what we're about. And if you're not part of it, doesn't mean we hate you. It's just that we've focused on something new here. And so, I mean, I think historically Christians have done that. Like, hey, we're the people who don't kill our babies or have sex with people we're not married to. Yeah. Um, there are like, and you could throw in a couple other things there that are just like culturally appalling, but bring clarity to what it is mm-hmm. that you're joining when you become part of a church. So I think... Um, on one hand, it does create difficulties, It's, but it's not going to fracture relationships that weren't already non-existent. I guess that's the thing that I'm, I keep trying to come sure, back around yeah. to. Is like, So I think it so, is healthy to bring clarity. That clarity will bring some division, mm-hmm. but it's actually division that already pre-existed this issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the other side of what I just said was, you know, because it's so culturally central we need greater clarity on the matter. And so therefore, we do need confessional statements that reflect our, st- our stance on human sexuality. So in that sense, it's probably going to be necessary as we move forward. But you're right. And I mean, it, you're right that is it a recipe for church growth? Is cultural accommodation a recipe for church growth? No, I mean, setting aside the matter of, you know, a lot of people for them, this is an element of real conviction. This is serious, serious conviction at play here. But yeah, you can, of course, look to mainline denominations as a model. And you can see very clearly, actually, that cultural accommodation is not a great strategy for growing a church. But I think and that's, that, that's the pragmatism. That's, on this that's matter, leaving the whole theology yeah. of it out. That's just but, pragmatism. Yeah, <laughs> but it's Absolutely. True. Yeah, yeah. So there is that piece. But to bring up what I what I said earlier now again, the I, this is one of those those areas where there is enormous pressure and I think right now this could change 
But right now, I think this human sexuality is the area where you're going to see the highest social cost that comes along with with being explicit on your stance. It, I mean, it, it just, every denomination is wrestling with this question in its own way. The United Methodist Church, which is the second largest denomination in the United States, aside from the Southern Baptists, is fracturing over this issue itself. There are major ten- tensions within my own denomination. Nathan, I know you're <laughs> you're sitting in first and seeing firsthand some of the tensions on on your side there. So this is this is a pretty ubiquitous problem, and so that means that there there will be some social cost that comes along with this. Some of it will be spelled out in ter- financially. Some of it will be loss of friendships. Some of it will be people walking away from the church, and so. That is a sobering matter, but also it's, it is nothing new. Every cultural juncture or every historical juncture brings with it unique forms of idolatry, unique challenges to the church. And when the church takes, takes her stand, there is a social cost that comes along with it. So I, I think a lot, of, a lot of Christians who are sort of sitting in the exhausted middle we often refer to as, you know, to whom we often refer, are just kind of, they're, they're, I think, counting that cost a little bit and thinking, wow, these simmering tensions aren't going away. In fact, many of them are, are probably more like seething and they're coming, they're, just, they're sort of boiling over. And we're going we're gonna to experience some pain and some sorrow and some loss in our local congregations. And that is true. It is sad, and it is something we need to be prepared for, and many of us are walking through it right now. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things just to add there is that the bleed from the church that I've seen um, has not been people with same-sex attraction or wrestling with their identity. Um, those are people who are all welcomed and part of congregations and wrestling and working like we all are into being shaped into Christ-likeness. There, that, so on the practical level, on the day-to-day pastoral relationships and friendships that we have with individuals who wrestle with things on all sorts of places, on all sorts of spectrums, um, this gets lived out practically, I think, in healthy ways. Where I see people leaving, and in larger numbers, are those who start in on these conversations from a more conservative side, perhaps, and say, we're not even interpreting Scripture in the same way anymore. Why are we part of this? And so they see it more as a fundamental breakdown of language and the ability to communicate and the recognition yeah. that uh, actually what I thought I was part of, uh, that is now very different. And so um, I've seen a whole lot more loss in that direction of people saying, you know what, I don't have time for this. Uh, I've tried um, and been mocked, and I'm out of here. And so there's a, there's a, there's deep hurt in both directions, and I think that's an important part, that there, there are tears shed by many people yeah. on these as they come to realize the loss of a thing that they thought existed but doesn't anymore. So I think it is uh, wise for denominations to have clarity about this or else you're going to end up being left only with the people who can't go anywhere else or the people who are the just the only ones willing to volunteer, and that's not a healthy structure for moving forward together. So I think there is some, mm-hmm. uh, yep. there's some good that comes out of this. There's a a renewed necessity to have exegetical clarity to say, what do we mean when we say certain things about what we believe about scripture and theology and history and human interaction. 
And I'm particularly excited about this one, Cameron, because I think the church really does mm. need to wrestle with some of its ideas about human bodies in the physical world. And our sexuality mm. is one of those integral parts, but there's a whole lot more to how we think about our bodies and other human bodies and the physical earth. And like, there's a lot more to it that this should open up some good conversations where we would see this as a part of a discussion, not the entirety of a discussion itself. So I think there's room for real growth. Um, The the worst thing is like name calling and dismissiveness in both directions. Uh, Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully those of you who are listening have places where you can sit down and have those mature theological conversations in the middle that are generated based in respect rather than chaos. But those are becoming sadly fewer and farther between. So anyways, it's, it's worth wrestling with because the Lord, you know, it's, it's a line that I always quote from my mother who every time I was complaining about something as a child in the church, my mom would always say, the Lord has a lot of work to do on us all. And that was the Mama Rittenhouse way of getting me to cool my jets a little bit of recognizing that, yeah, it's a pretty straightforward quote. The Lord has a lot of work to do on us all. And so that's the place that we find ourselves in. And uh, part of the work that he is doing in us is not just shaping us in Christ likeness, but also calling others to be faithful in that pursuit as we do so. So anyway, I hope that the Lord gives you opportunities to do just that as you uh, ponder these decisions and things that are happening in your congregations and denominations and see uh, a real opportunity to be Christ-like in all of these situations uh, as a witness to the people in your church, but then even more broadly as a witness to the world. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, Whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.